0: Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. I want to thank you guys for joining us this morning. I'm grateful that you're here worshiping with us. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. And again, we have a beautiful day to celebrate the goodness of God. I do want to make a note that uh, if you're here and you feel led to give, you are able to give uh, in several ways. Uh, One, you can give online, two, you can scan the QR code. Three, you can give via text or four, if you're old fashioned, you can walk it right up to the back door and they'll take it there. Multiple avenues for you to give as the Lord may lead you. Simply want to encourage you to give as you feel led to support the mission of what God is doing in his local church. Now, as we move forward and are continuing our study here in the book of Acts, we're going to wrap up chapter 10 today, in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 48, and I've titled today's sermon, The Gospel for All. Uh, In this section of Scripture, uh, if you remember from where we were last week, we've got Peter, who has uh, been brought to Cornelius. Cornelius is this Roman centurion who is, uh, by all appearances, this man who is a good man who's doing good works, who's a God-fearer. And we end the story with him standing before Cornelius, and essentially they've said, so what is it that I've brought you here for? What is it that God has called me to bring you here? And this is beginning a, a seminal moment within the life of the church that this moment that we look at today in particular is going to be really the first proclamation, the first intentional proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. This is the first moment where we see this culmination of God's plan throughout the Old Testament and to this point, pointing to this moment that the gospel is for all. Now, I know as we sit here on this side of the scriptures, you know, 2,000 years after the time of Jesus, and we find it a little funny that we would have this moment of discussing, well, the gospel is for all, right? You know, we would say today, well, of course the gospel is for all. Every man, woman, and child that exists should have an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. That every person should have an opportunity to respond. In fact, as we study Scripture, we recognize that Paul writes in Romans that everybody who lives on this earth, who can see the majesty of the heavens and earth, can see the glory of God and should respond to the fact that something greater than themselves exists. Yet, as we say those words, as we believe those words even now, there have been times within the history of the church where that's not been true. And I'm not just pointing fingers back to the ancient Jews, but we can also discuss this within the confines of the modern church. That within the local church just 200 years ago, that African Americans would not have been allowed to sit here under the preaching of the word within many local churches in Charleston. That hundreds of years ago, missionaries were not sent to faraway countries because those heathens, those irreconcilable people, should not have access to the gospel. We trace the story of the gospel back even further, and we encounter this era that we're studying, the Jewish-centric culture within Israel that would say that these Gentiles, they are not of God's chosen people, Therefore, they cannot have access to the full gospel. They cannot have access to the God, this holy God that is the God of Israel. You know, we say that we believe that the gospel is for all. And I truly do believe that that is our heart. That is what we believe today. But it is necessary for us to address the reality that throughout history, the church has not always responded and acted like the fact that the gospel is indeed for all. Now, Luke, who is our writer here within the book of Acts, has a very intentional, specific concern in this because Luke is a Gentile. Luke is one of the very men that many of the Jewish people in this time would have said should not have access to the God of the universe. He's one of the men who walked with Jesus, who saw him, who saw him do these miraculous things. Luke has been chosen as an apostle, is what we understand. Yet Luke is a Gentile and is looked down upon by certain people. As we study this, uh, Fred actually mentioned this last week. We're looking at our New Testament study in the book of Luke. And Fred described uh, something that he read indicating that Luke approaches things like the physician that he is. And he writes Luke and he writes Acts like he's performing an autopsy. Like he's out to prove the cause of death. Or in this case, I would argue, he's writing in such a way to prove his cause for life. And I believe as we study this passage, the three points that I have for us today will serve as validation of not only this moment of God bringing the gospel to the Gentiles and seeing the church expand even further, but a validation of God's plan that Luke would argue throughout the entire width and breadth of the Bible. God's plan was always for the Gentiles to be included with the family. So if we can, would you stand and allow us to read the word of God together? Beginning in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Words will be available up here on the screen. Beginning in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for you and for your goodness and grace. That as we study the scriptures, we see that your plan was always to bring the gospel to bear on the hearts and minds of all people from all places. That your plan has always been to come first to the Jews and then from them be the vine that would graft other vines to you. And so, Father, as we see this on display in this section of Scripture, would you fill our hearts with joy that we as Gentiles here 2,000 years past are able to look upon this and celebrate that your plan was not thwarted by sinfulness or misunderstanding, but your good plan was greater than everything else it encountered. That even now, we are a part of this family rejoicing and celebrating the good news that the gospel was indeed for all. So Father, today, would you allow us to see your scriptures, to reveal the truth of the text to us, and let us wrestle with God's word with, so that we might walk away transformed by the very God of the Bible. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. So our first point here is that faith will have evidence. Faith will have evidence. Look back at verses 34 and 35 with me. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You see, Peter begins his sermon here by stressing this truth that God does not show favoritism is how we can describe it. And as we hear that, again, we tend to insert our modern understanding of culture and life into these moments. And we look at this and we go, well, of course, Peter, that's right. Could you tell me something that I don't know? Yet, we have to keep the context of this error in mind. You see, Jews do not willingly associate with non-Jews if it could be helped. Within this culture that we're reading from the Bible in, this culture that the story is happening in, this culture that it's written to, the Jews did not willingly associate with non-Jews. There was a dividing line that was drawn that is, if you're a non-Jew, you can only come so far into the temple. That if you're a non-Jew and I associate with you, I am now ritually unclean and I must be made clean. And so Peter begins with something that is a quite bold statement, perhaps for his listeners, by proclaiming this truth that God does not show partiality. And as we look at this, I think it's actually quite interesting how Peter says this. You have to start breaking down some of the language here in the Greek and going back to some of the Hebrew to really understand it. But without getting incredibly Bible nerdy with you, The Greek word here for partiality or favoritism that you see, it's actually constructed or borrowed from a Hebrew phrase meaning to lift a face. Now, why that's important for us is because what Peter is literally saying to the gathered people is he's saying that God does not look down upon some people because of their race, nor does he look down upon other people because of their race. You see, the Jewish people would say that we have been elevated above these Gentiles because God chose us. There's some pride and arrogance perhaps coming into display. Yet Peter's very clearly saying God does not look down upon these Gentiles as being unworthy of his grace. Nor does he look up to you by saying that you are better than them. You see, Peter understands this truth that the thing that unites us before God is our brokenness and our desperate need of a savior. Peter understands the reality that at the foot of the cross, all is level ground. And so Peter begins with this bold statement of saying that if indeed God is going to discriminate, it's not going to be over race, but rather he's going to discriminate between those who worship him and those who do not because that is what matters to the Lord. You see, he's not concerned about their cultural heritage. He's not concerned about where they were born. He's not concerned about if... They've come from the right family, but rather he's concerned about their spiritual condition. Now, Peter's a, a bold man, as we've seen throughout some of the scriptures. It's a complete 180 from who he was back when Jesus was crucified, right? Like he's scared of a little girl. He doesn't want to proclaim that he follows Jesus. And now he's over here kicking rocks and throwing stuff at people, making sure they hear that the Lord of Lords is a God for all. He keeps going in verse 35, and he says that here that anyone... In every nation who fears him, if they fear him and do it right, they are acceptable to him. You see, this statement certainly would have risen some eyebrows among the Jews, perhaps even the Jews that were with him. He makes it very clear that anyone who fears God and does the right thing will be found acceptable before the Lord. I have to think that as he says this, he's looking directly at Cornelius, right? As he's looking at Cornelius, he's perhaps proclaiming these words. And as we see from the previous section of Scripture that Pastor Brian covered last week for us, Cornelius' belief was on full display, that he was known as a God-fearer. He was known as a man who was constantly devoting himself to prayer. He was known for his actions of charity. That he was a man that people stopped and looked at and said, I don't know what this man believes, but there is something about him that is different. And so he proclaims this truth that indeed, if you fear him and do what is right, you will be found acceptable before the Lord. Now this I think requires us to wrestle with some ideas about faith and works as we look at this. Because some would look at this and argue that perhaps Cornelius's works have led to salvation. That Perhaps this is because as Peter's standing before him that Cornelius has done good works and so God has found him worthy. Well, no, I don't think that's what's happening. I don't think that's a true statement. I think... Uh, Augustine argues that Cornelius, like Abraham, has shown himself to be a man of faith and trust in God. You see, God was already working his grace in him, and it's manifested itself in his good deeds. You see, Cornelius is found acceptable to God because of a God-given faith, which is found practical expression in godly living. Yet, in this moment, we recognize that he's not received this new covenant that would come from trusting in Jesus and being filled with the Spirit. Cornelius is being found acceptable because underneath the old covenant, he has done things right. Yet, with Jesus coming in, the new covenant being inaugurated, he has not trusted in Jesus yet. Now, I think this lines up with James' statement over in the book of James that faith without works is dead. That this is not contradicting one another, but rather supporting one another mutually. You see, Cornelius' faith here underneath the old covenant is found to be alive and well because his works serve as evidence that his faith is alive and well. Ultimately, works are an evidence, an example to the world that our faith is living and active. No, works are not the only example of our faith, but it's quite an important example for us. I'm reminded of just the funny statement that if it looks like a duck, if it acts like a duck, if it sounds like a duck, odds are it's a duck. And as we look at this, I believe that Peter seems to be convinced that Cornelius is indeed a duck and continues on with his sermon. Because you see, not only does he proclaim that your faith has displayed evidence, now let me tell you about what you have faith in, even though you have not heard this gospel message of new. You see, we're transitioning to the next section in his scripture, which shows us that faith only comes from the gospel. Peter begins to move into his formal sermon and he's going to start relating the gospel to the gathered people here. And you might think that, hey, this is an incredible moment, right? This is when he's going to begin proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. Like this is perhaps the culmination of God's plan. He's going to do something unique and different. He's going to do something off the wall. He's going to have a fine illustration, whatever it might be. Maybe you think that. But Peter... um, He's a one-trick pony, if you might be able to say that. When we look at his sermons in the book of Acts, do you know what Peter consistently talks about? He preaches the same thing every single time. What is it? Well, he preaches about the ministry and life of Christ. He preaches about his death, burial, and resurrection. And he calls people to respond to faith. See, Peter would perhaps be a very boring preacher in that he preaches the exact same sermon every time he gets a chance to preach. Yet, every time he proclaims the good news of the gospel as we study scripture, what happens? The church expands, not because of what Peter is doing, but because of the power of his message. Now, as we wrestle with this, the only thing he changes here is his ending. The only thing he changes is because he recognizes he's speaking to Gentiles. And he changes his ending because he knows they don't have the context of the Old Testament. And so he says, let's address this Old Testament stuff here. I would encourage you as you have some time over this week to compare his sermons to the sermons of Paul as we look at Scripture. Scripture. If you want to just jot down, uh, in Acts 14 and Acts 17, we see Paul preaching to Gentiles very clearly, very boldly there. And I would encourage you to go just compare these two because there are some differences in terms of how they approach proclaiming the gospel. Yet, the core essence of the message is the same. That there is a perfect God of the universe who wants to be reconciled with you That you are a condemned sinner in need of a savior. Condemned sinner, meet a holy, righteous God who's paid a debt on your behalf by his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the heart of the message. It's the heart of the gospel. And indeed, we recognize the truth that faith comes only from the gospel. That even as Luke is perhaps writing these words inspired by the Holy Spirit, you can just imagine that he's pumping his fist going, I told you, I knew it. I knew this was the plan all along. Now Peter begins his sermon and he's starting with this good news of the gospel coming to Israel in verses 36 and 38. I'll read them for us. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace Throughout, through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He starts here and he's beginning with this good news of the gospel coming to Israel. And he points out that this good news of peace has been sent through Jesus. Now there's some really interesting language here as we look at this passage, particularly as we look at kind of the, the word play between Israel and Lord of all. He says that the gospel was sent to the people of Israel. But its content was peace, the peace that only Jesus can bring, who coincidentally is the Lord of all. Let me make those connections for you that I think Peter's trying to weave together as he's beginning to proclaim this gospel story. Essentially, if indeed he is the Lord of all, then the gospel that he brings, the peace that he brings is for all people, not just Israel. That if we're looking at this, we would recognize that the truth is that he brought the gospel to Israel for it to be a vehicle to carry the gospel to the rest of the world, to the ends of the earth. You see, Peter's not just coming up with this on his own, though certainly he's inspired by the Lord. Rather, what we see is that he's quoting portions of the prophet Isaiah through this message, particularly here. As he's quoting these portions of Isaiah, he's using this reference to Isaiah to argue that the gospel has come to reconcile both the Jew and the Gentile in Christ. Now, we're not making an argument or nothing because this sounds very similar to Paul making his argument in Ephesians chapter 2 where he argues that the same God that has come to bring life to the Jews has come to bring life to the Gentiles. He goes further on to say that the very gospel itself breaks down this dividing wall in flesh. The differences that would separate us are not greater than that which unites us. And the thing that unites us is King Jesus sitting on his throne. Now he continues and He's dropped this landmine, if you will, of saying that this Lord, this Jesus, this gospel of peace, this Lord of all has come so that all could see, hear, and respond to the glory of the name of Jesus. He then tells us what did Jesus do? He talks about his earthly ministry in verses 37 and 38. And in fact, if you look at this, these verses are actually a, almost a summary of the outline of Jesus's life as we see presented over in Mark's gospel. You know, one of the things we recognize about the book of Mark is that it was perhaps the earliest gospel that is written down. And we see that perhaps Peter's paraphrasing some portions of that or just relating very minimally his own experience. But he talks through the baptism of John. He talks about the Galilean period with this extensive healing ministry, all these miracles that Jesus performed. He ends with talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. You see, he's aware of this reality that Cornelius and his family, those that have gathered from the household, they've likely heard portions of this story. Maybe they've heard the entire story. That this story was so significant, even that contemporary writers, contemporary historians like Josephus wrote and made note that Jesus lived and was buried and died and is said to have resurrected. It's big news, right? It's on everybody's iPhone at this time. Jesus was dead, buried, and then he supposedly resurrected. They've heard the story, but he's proclaiming the gospel message in full to ensure they hear every component here. Everything that is necessary for them to repent of their sin. No, it's not a problem if they only heard a portion of the story, perhaps. But how can someone come to faith if they don't know the full story of God and what he has done for you and I? And so Peter is laying out all that Jesus has done in terms of his earthly ministry. In verses 39 through 42, he begins to transition to a more formal witnessing section. That the language changes a little bit and becomes a little bit more formal here. That he's beginning to kind of stand before them and proclaim that he is a person who saw these things. Let's look at verse 39. Let's read through these. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now, the reason this section becomes a little bit more formal within the language and begins to get a little bit more legalistic, if we can use that term, we have to keep in mind the apostles' chief purpose. You see, the apostles' chief purpose is that they walked with Jesus. They knew him personally. They'd walked with him on his time on earth and they were witnesses to his resurrection. That is, they had seen him after the resurrection during those about 40 days that he was on earth after his resurrection. You see, Peter and the other apostles, their primary purpose in the church is to be an eyewitness, to provide firsthand accounts of the death of Burial and resurrection of Jesus, you see, Peter says here that they were chosen by God to be firsthand eyewitnesses proclaiming of the death burial and resurrection. The weight that 's been given there is because this idea of the death, burial and resurrection, this is a central tenet of our faith. That this is the keystone that holds it all together. That if there is no death, burial, and resurrection, there is no Christianity. And so God, in the beginning, with his holy church, established these men who could be there as eyewitnesses to proclaim to the world, this story you've heard of Jesus, not only is it true, but I saw it all. Now, he speaks here about the death, burial, and resurrection in a few short verses that he, he doesn't go a great deal of depth here. He kind of gives us a, a Cliff Notes version, if you will. Yet, he does provide a complete gospel presentation for the gathered people. He talks through everything you would need to understand, to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus. He also has a very particular focus upon the resurrection of Jesus here. So as I was preparing for this, it it did seem a little unusual to add that emphasis in of that he is a witness to this, talking about the apostolic tradition of being a witness to the resurrection, uh, referencing that, and several commentators have indicated that it's likely the case that most Gentiles actually had no understanding of a bodily resurrection. And I thought that was interesting. So I did a little research trying to figure out where is this idea coming from. And historically, did you know that there are not truly any known religions in this area around Jerusalem, around Israel that they would be connected with That would have had a bodily resurrection, a part of their religious orders. Perhaps the closest is that there are some pre-Abraham. So we're talking thousands of years before the nation of Israel even is established. Ideas in Egypt and in Canaan, some works that point to this idea. So there's at least from thousands of years ago, someone said that there's a possibility of a bodily resurrection within their faith. Even some of the oldest religions that some would trace back to this time period, though I don't know if necessarily they go back this far, but some scholars believe that Buddhism and Hinduism are traced back even as old as the story of Abraham, perhaps. They're not known to have reached this area, but both have some general ideas about the bodily resurrection, but that's in India and China, no connection to this area. Even Greek philosophy, they have some stories within Greek mythology of of men being brought back to life, but they're brought back to life as gods and no longer have anything to do with this earthly realm. But certainly by modern day times within Peter's era, we see that Greek philosophy has denied and in their minds disproven the bodily resurrection he has this focus on the resurrection because they don't truly have a clue what he's talking about. I also find it interesting that he has this focus upon Jesus's command to preach the word and an emphasis on Jesus as the appointed judge. You see these ideas for you and I they're they're not new for us. These are things that we are well acquainted with, yet they're unique in the sermon. You see, we've not seen him use that type of language in any of his previous sermons. He doesn't bring that up anywhere else. Yet here he does. You see, I would submit to you that what I believe Peter is doing is that he's showing them that Jesus has commanded the gospel to be proclaimed ultimately to all people. Why? Because Jesus is ultimately going to judge all people. You see, he's weaving these threads together to show that the gospel is indeed available to anyone. He's appealing to God's character by saying that a good God would not give people an opportunity to not respond to the gospel, right? He would not condemn people to hell with no access to the gospel. And Paul picks up that thread in Romans and says, they can look at the heavens and earth and know that something greater themselves exists. No man can look at a tree and go, tree, grow. Yet God, by his spoken word, can cause the seas to rise and fall. I'm paraphrasing some of Paul's message in Romans 1. Yet Peter's beginning to weave those threads together for the church. To show, to display this truth that indeed faith comes from the gospel. And indeed the gospel is for all. Now, as Peter is perhaps wrapping up his sermon, we get to verse 43. And he offers us this conclusion of his sermon. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. See, Peter ends his sermon with, Something very similar to what he does throughout the rest of his preaching recorded here, where he offers an invitation, an opportunity for people to respond. But he does something different in that he also addresses the reality of the Old Testament here. Even as he does this, this is first an invitation that whoever would believe in Jesus will receive the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because it has been promised by the prophets. He's making clear that the prophets themselves are bearing witness to the fact that the Messiah was going to come and that, yes, he was going to bring glory to Israel because we would be redeemed. But he's also come to redeem every tribe, every tongue, every nation. See, this is a reference to some of Peter's other sermons because he continually addresses some issues of the prophets. He builds his case, so to speak, on the prophets and then says all this that the prophets said is pointing to Jesus. The language here is actually very similar to Luke 24. And that shouldn't be a surprise because we believe Luke wrote both Luke and Acts and the language is very similar there. And Luke is perhaps, as he's recording this, pointing back to, do you remember on the Mas Road? Do you remember in Luke 24 where we see that Jesus explained that everything in the Old Testament prophets, every dot, every iota was pointing to him. Everything the Old Testament prophets wrote has been fulfilled in Jesus. You see, when Peter offers this invitation, he's not offering them an invitation to a new faith. He's not offering them an invitation to something that is unproven and new. He's offering them an invitation to a faith that is anchored for thousands of years in the word of God and the promises that he has made through his prophets to his people that he would come To redeem his people. You see, as Peter says these words, he's inviting them to a faith that is older than the foundations of the earth. And it's this argument that we see this that faith brings evidence, that faith comes from the gospel. And it's this argument that I believe Luke is making here that ultimately faith is for all people who believe faith is for all people who believe see that's our third point and I believe that's what sums up this last section we look at in 44 through 48 while Peter was still saying these things the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word Then they asked him to remain for some days. You see, as Peter is in the middle of perhaps offering his conclusion, we see what we could perhaps describe as a miracle, a revival, if you could argue that, breaking out. The Greek actually makes it clear that he's still speaking these things. He's in the middle of his sermon And he said enough for people to respond in faith to Jesus himself. And they respond and they receive the gift of the Spirit just as the church did at Pentecost in the book of Acts. Earlier in Acts 2. As we look at this, the language is the same that he's pointing to of the Spirit coming and resting upon them. If you remember back in Acts chapter 2, God used the Spirit to do something to signify the new covenant being established. How? Well, through speaking through known tongues, proclaiming the gospel, the testimony of these people, and the known tongues of all that have gathered together. We see that there's some rushing wind, that there's fire falling from the sky, that there's a pretty dramatic moment to draw people's attention to the fact that the new covenant has begun. And here we see God use similar language and do a similar thing to signify the new covenant has formally expanded to include Gentiles by using the same language by displaying the same actions, by showing the same response. This group that's gathered together, they've witnessed a miracle. And Peter asked the obvious question as he's standing before them. Can any of you who have gathered together offer any reason why we, we should not celebrate these people entering into the body of Christ? Who could stand here and offer any word against what we have just seen that this gospel is for all who would choose to believe? Well, as you might suggest, after seeing a miracle, not a word is uttered. No objections can be found in this moment. And these people are baptized. Baptized. They go from Gentiles who were held on the outskirts of the temple who could not find forgiveness before the Lord to being brought firmly into the inner circle. No, they couldn't get into the Holy of Holies, but now the Holy of Holies dwells inside of them. No, they did not have access to the full gospel, but now they carry the gospel in their hearts. Once they were strangers and sojourners, once they were outsiders, now they are co heirs with Christ. This is the gospel message that faith is for all people who would believe. And as we wrestle with this today, as we consider our response to this, the question that I must ask is, have you received this faith that is offered from Jesus? Because what I would believe that Luke has done is he's built a compelling case that indeed Jesus is who he says he is. That he's built this foundation off the Old Testament. That the word of God is indeed a living, active representation of God that we see through the scriptures that Jesus is who he says he is and so today you and I have a decision to make you and I have an opportunity to choose to respond to Jesus or we can choose to reject the free gift of grace that is offered today You see, what I am confident of is that everyone here who is listening, either in here or online, every single person will make a decision about Jesus today. Every single person will either choose to follow Jesus or you will choose to reject his gift of grace. The question that I would ask The question I would put before you is to simply ask what could prevent the goodness of God from changing your life? I would submit to you the only thing that could prevent the goodness of God from changing your life is your own rebellion against the God of the universe. There is no sin too great that He can't forgive there is no person too far gone that cannot be redeemed. There is no place on earth that you can go that the grace of God cannot reach you. And so the only thing that could prevent you from receiving the free gift of grace is your sinful pride. Brothers and sisters, lay down that burden that you're not meant to carry. You are not meant to carry the weight of your sin and shame. What you are meant to do is to lay it down at the foot of the cross. Allow Jesus to bear that burden and to rest that you have been reconciled with the King of the universe. And so I simply ask you today, what could prevent you from receiving the free gift of grace. Today, as we close our time in prayer and a time of worship, you have opportunity to wrestle with that question. That here in the next few moments that we'll have a time of silent prayer where you can go to the Lord of the universe. You can go directly to Jesus and you can ask him, is there anything that I've done that you won't forgive, Jesus? Is there anywhere that I can go that your saving arm won't reach? Is there anyone that is too far gone to be redeemed? You can ask him those very words. And as we study scripture, we recognize there is one prayer that God will always answer. And this is a prayer calling to him, asking for salvation. I assure you that if you ask those questions before the Lord, he will answer. And so in our time of silent prayer, take time to ask those questions before the Lord. I'll close us in prayer and we'll sing of a song celebrating the goodness of God. And it's my hope and prayer that you sing this song as someone who has been redeemed of their sin, who has chosen to receive the goodness of the gospel. If you have questions about this, I'll be here up front. Pastor Brian will be available. Please speak to us. We'd love to hear what God is doing in your life. But if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we come to you as people who carry burdens, who carry weights of sin and shame, who carry the weight of expectations, who carry burdens that we are not meant to carry. Yet in the midst of this, you are here freely offering the ability to take those burdens away from us. That you offer your yoke, which is light and easy in comparison. That you offer the willingness to carry the weight of all of those things on our behalf. And all that is required for us to, to have this great exchange happen is to look to you. And to say that we are sinners in need of a savior to repent of our sin and turn away, to return to our beloved that we were promised to before the foundations of the earth, to return to the God who loves us intimately and desires us to be his children, to return to be a co-heir with Christ in all the immeasurable riches and mercy that you've provided, Lord. Lord, Father, all we have to do is lay down our burdens before you and ask to receive your yoke. Father, it is my prayer that for those that have gathered or or are watching online, that we would confess our sin before you, that we would lay it all down at the foot of the cross and recognize that we have all been burdened by these things. And you and your goodness, your grace, your majesty have not offered condemnation, have not offered criticism. You've not even offered rejection, but rather you have offered grace. That even when you are broken and burdened by all that life brings upon us, you are still there, ready and willing to carry the weight of these things that we were not meant to carry. So Father, today I pray that we would choose you, Jesus. That we would choose to follow Jesus. That we would choose to submit to the Father just as Jesus does. And that we would allow the Spirit to dwell in our hearts, making us a holy place, a holy temple for the Lord. Father, today would you soften our hearts, And lead us to repentance, Lord. It is my hope that we sing and celebrate as people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Rejoicing in the goodness of your grace and mercy, Father. Lord, we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.